The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to the Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for part two of a three-part series called Equality and Life, a series of conversations about racial equality in our hometown. The Equality and Life series is part of our Local Color Project, made possible by the generous support of Bank of America. This is one of our event-type episodes where we share the recording of a recent event, The Equality in Life series has three parts, each focused on a specific area where inequalities exist in our systems. The programs took place in June and July of 2020, and now they're being released on the Village Squarecast, one each week for three Thursdays in a row. Part one was about justice and law enforcement, and you can find it on the Village Squarecast right before this episode. That was an excellent conversation with representatives from law enforcement, the criminal justice system, the neighborhood community, the faith community, and civil rights activists. Part two is focused on business and growth, and that's the one you'll hear in this episode. Heidi Otway, president of Salter Mitchell Public Relations, facilitated this event over Zoom and Facebook Live, and it brings together a panel of eight community members from the various chambers of commerce, business owners, elected officials, and educators. These folks will introduce themselves shortly. Part three is focused on the role of government and the future. You can find that discussion next up on the Village Squarecast. And you can always visit villagesquare.us to subscribe to our newsletter, register for events, learn what's happening with the Village Square, and so much more. So now back to part two, business and growth. Before we get started, I got to tell on myself a little bit here, you guys. And this is part of the whole listening and learning phase that I've realized I need to be in. So I've been really excited about this Equality in Life series because I have been wanting to dig into these issues more. But honestly, and I'm going to go crawl under the table here after I say this. Sorry, Heidi. I have been most excited about number one and number three because it's become clear to me that we have some major areas of inequality in our criminal justice system, law enforcement, and the school system. And so those are the areas I've been paying more attention to and have wanted to explore deeper. When it comes to this topic here, part two, business and growth, I didn't really understand how exactly black people are disadvantaged in this space because, you know, we have all these equal rights laws and people are supposed to have equal opportunities. So because I didn't see how black people are disadvantaged in these systems, this topic didn't rise up in importance for me. 
But now in hindsight, I realize this may be the most important topic for me personally because it's where I've been blind. Here are a couple of quotes from this episode that really helped open my eyes. First, here's Peter Bulware talking about the lack of black business ownership and opportunities in the automotive industry. We are capable. It's a shame that there's only four out of 177 um, uh, dealers out there. And so there's enough capable black men and women out there. Uh, We just want opportunities. Uh, You give us opportunities and uh, we'll create the change in the community. And here are a couple quotes from Antonio Jefferson and Dominic Artis about access to capital. Chef Chef Shad is in our community. It won national awards. She can't even get a loan to open up a business. 1% of all venture capital funds and managers are actually Black and Hispanic. When you think about that and you look at the number of venture-backed companies that were Black, that's actually 1% as well. If you go down to black women, you're talking about 0.002% of black women businesses have actually been funded by venture capital. You know, I think we can all relate to how hard life and business can be and how competitive the business environment is. And so now I find myself thinking, if I've realized that there are serious inequities in the school system, law enforcement, and criminal justice system, and add that to the generational aspect of how wealth gets passed down... How would it be possible for the black community to overcome all that and have an equal playing field in business? For me, this was another one of those times when things seem so obvious after the fact. Things come into focus, questions I didn't even know I had or answered. And that's sort of the whole point behind what the Village Square tries to do. Have real and tough conversations so people can grow in their own understanding of each other and this complicated world around us. We are very fortunate to live in a community where conversations like this are happening and where we have folks like this and so many others all over our community doing the hard work to make change happen. So thanks to all the panelists for participating and thanks to you for joining us for this important discussion. With that, let's turn it over to Heidi Otway. Good evening, everyone who is joining us on this call today. My name is Heidi Otway, and I'm the president of Salter Mitchell Public Relations. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to Equality in Life, Business and Growth. This event is presented under the auspices of the Village Square in partnership with Bethel Missionary Baptist Church, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and my friends at Sachs Media Group. As Americans seek to understand and address the unfinished work on race in America, we wanted to turn our attention to our community in a series of conversations on equality in life. Tonight's conversation will focus on equality in our community in the areas of hometown business, the hometown business community, and we'll imagine what our future would be and the action steps to help us get there. Now I'm going to go to our distinguished guests and give them a chance to share a little bit about themselves, their roles and responsibilities in our community, and talk about what they're observing when it comes to race and business and growth in the Tallahassee area. I'm going to start with our City of Tallahassee Mayor Pro Tem, Commissioner Diane Williams-Cox. Hello, Commissioner. Hello. Good evening, Heidi. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Village Square, for putting this on. Um, Again, as she mentioned, I am Mayor Pro Tem Diane Williams-Cox. I was elected to the City Commission in um, 2018, and so I'm about to finish about midterm. 
And what I love about our city of Tallahassee, we have a lot of things to be proud of. We have uh, history-making folks. We have history-making And we just, we're a well-rounded city. We were an all-American city uh, twice before, and we are again uh, an all-American city in our hearts. And I think that what we're doing here that, that I believe is right, we are working together, we're collaborating with, uh, with the different commissions, the different governments, levels of government, the university system. And we're, we're trying to make sure we have a cohesive, collaborative effort to keep our city moving forward. I'm enjoying working with the city and county commission as well as school board to do those, those kinds of things. So I think that Tallahassee is a unique place. It's a place called home, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. And now we're going to go to Leland County Chair Commissioner Brian Deloge, who's also a well-known businessman in our community. Commissioner? Um, thanks, Village Square, for putting this on. Uh, great conversation. I'm looking forward to this evening. Um, I'm Brian Deloge. I'm Chairman of the Leon County Commission. Um, I, I'm going to come at this from two different angles, from a business owner standpoint and from a government official more recently. Um, so I look forward to the conversation tonight, and I'll echo Commissioner Williams-Cox, my peer there who I love working with, uh, some of her comments. We live in a great community. And let me just say, um, I'm a big believer of you, 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 you realize what people are made of when the chips are down and you're having a tough time. And certainly in the last 90 days, we've seen uh, our share of tough times. And it's inspiring to watch the, the business community, the faith community, the um, general social services, the government, small local government, everybody's stepping up. And it really... Um, it makes me proud to be part of this community. So I look forward to the conversation tonight. Thanks, Heidi. All right. Thank you, Commissioner. And now I'm going to turn to Beth Quorum, who's the chair of the Tallahassee Chamber of Commerce, which is a position that I'm very familiar with, <laughs> having served a couple of years ago. Beth, welcome. Thank you. And thank you. Also, I'll echo my thanks to Village Square for the invitation to participate tonight. Um, I am Beth Corum. Uh, as Heidi said, I'm the current chair of the Greater Tallahassee Chamber of Commerce. I also serve as the Chief Operating Officer for Capital City Bank here in town. And um, most importantly, I'm just a member of our community. Uh, as I think through uh, what we might discuss tonight and what I'm seeing in the perspective is one of collaboration and open dialogue. And I'm seeing that not just in our business, but also in the other organizations of which I'm a member. Um, and it seems like the conversations are very similar and they trend along the lines of this is our moment to make a change as a community uh, to embrace um, everyone, uh, including our black community, our white community and others. But more importantly, not to just take a let's just do a couple of things and check that off the list, but really look for sustainable practices that create long-term and um, change. So I'm looking forward to the conversation tonight and uh, we'll probably comment from a number of different angles, again, being involved in a number of different organizations that are having these same conversations. So thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you, Beth. And now we'll hear from Katrina Tuggerson, who is the leader of the Capital City Chamber of Commerce. Katrina. Just to piggyback on what everybody said, um, what great community we live in, Tallahassee. And what we're seeing now is all communities are going through challenges and shifting. Um, with that being said, as being um, the, the head of Capital City Chamber and what we're seeing as the shift of a lot of, small, of the smaller businesses, um, what I'm enjoying working with and seeing 
seeing that everybody is being intentional. Um, and with what Beth has just said is we're being intentional what we're doing and setting programming and um, systems up that will work. Um, and if it doesn't work for the first couple of months, it's okay for us to shift again. Um, we just get so used to getting stuck in our um, own little um, systems till um, we don't even realize when it don't work. And I think that's what we're opening our eyes to. So I'm going to enjoy this conversation to listen to everybody. I think I've served with everybody on this board and serving in this capacity is even greater. Thank you, Katrina. And now we're going to go to Mr. Antonio Jefferson, who's the president of the Big Ben Minority Chamber of Commerce. Thank you, Heidi, and thank you, uh, colleagues that sit on this panel with me. I'm Antonio Jefferson, uh, president of the Big Ben Minority Chamber of Commerce. Also have the wonderful pleasure of being the city manager of the city of Gretna over in Gadsden County. Uh, I'm excited about this conversation because of this, is that I think every great generation that has come before us have had a moment in time in which that they could bring forth the significant changes in which impact our communities for a lifetime. The things that are written about in history books, and, and we have that moment now, and the people that are here participating in this conversation and all of the conversations that Village Square is gonna have on this subject, I think are wonderful people that can make that mark in our community that will be generational lasting, lifetime lasting. And this is a great conversation. I think we're starting at a great point. However, I will say this, and I will warn us all of this in our community as they listen. If we don't take advantage of this moment, our generation will not see this again. Uh, the next generation will. But I hope that, and I aspire that we will be impactful, thoughtful about what we're doing but more importantly, make the change that we all know that our community and other communities around our nation need. And I'm thankful to be part of this conversation, Heidi and others. Thank you. Thank you, Antonio. And now we're going to go to Dr. Shante Friday-Stroud, who's the Dean of the FAMU School of Business and Industry. Good evening, everyone. Um, I, too, want to thank uh, Village Square and Heidi um, for inviting me to be a panelist, but more importantly, for having, sharing, and opening this dialogue um, to our community. Um, you know, when we think about um, where we are, it is a great place to be. Um, we have some awesome assets here, but at the end of the day, it's really about what actions are we going to take that are going to set us on a better trajectory than we are now. So, you know, having honest, open, transparent dialogue, right, there are issues but we can confront those issues head on and figure out workable solutions. And so I would ask us to really start thinking about not just um, talking about change, not just pontificating on it, but actually committing the behaviors that lead to permanent systemic change that's going to make everyone in this community better. Um, because, you know, and I, I see it like on Village Square, a lot of their um, information, e pluribus unum, right? So out of many is one. If we all work together, we can have a much bigger pie that everybody can have a slice out of. But if we try to segment ourselves, we don't um, experience all the possibilities for growth, creativity, and, and, and flourishing that can come out of that. And so, you know, um, change is difficult. Um, conflict is difficult, but it's how you manage the conflict that truly determines 
the long-term benefits. And I do want this to be and lead to long-term benefits that not only we can experience, but that our kids and generations behind us can experience. So that out of the many of us, we are one Tallahassee, all pulling together, working together for the good of our community. Great. Thank you so much. We're now going to go to Mr. Peter Bolware, who's the owner of Legacy Toyota here in Tallahassee. Hi, Peter. Hey, how's it going? I'm so thankful to be a part of this panel. Uh, I come to this discussion from several different backgrounds. I played in the NFL for nine years, and I could have moved anywhere, but I decided to move back to Tallahassee because I love this great area. Uh, Tallahassee is just an incredible place to be. So thankful to be a part of this community. And uh, yes, I am the owner of Legacy Toyota and glad to serve in that capacity and just uh, looking for creative ways to serve this community. And uh, my hope as we go through this uh, discussion and we go through this, uh, this season of our life is that we don't miss the moment. Uh, we take advantage of the opportunity that we have to affect uh, some true change that will last a lifetime. And so uh, I'm in it with everything that I have and just, again, so thankful to be a part of what we're doing here. And uh, hopefully we can move the ball down the field. So thank you for letting me be a part of this. Thank you so much. And then last on our distinguished panel is Dominic Artis, the founder and CEO of the ACT House. Hi, Dominic. Hey, Heidi. How's it going? Uh, and thank you again to Village Square and Liz. So glad to honestly be on this call with so many uh, great leaders in our community. I stand on the shoulders of them uh, coming behind. And so uh, very excited to be here. Again, my name is Dominic Artis, founder and CEO of the ACT House. Uh, we focus on putting students in one house to create one startup in one year and really creating paths for the next generation to really begin to uh, take participation in the innovation economy. Uh, and it's very exciting to uh, do that here in Tallahassee. Uh, I am from here, moved away for a little bit, came back. Uh, and I think as Peter said that uh, Tallahassee is a great community and I'm very happy to be here uh, serving on this panel with so many others. Um, as all the panelists have said, I think it's a beautiful moment in time uh, that we are living in. And I believe it's a beautiful space to really begin to think through different ways that we can begin to act together. Uh, and as uh, Dean Friday Shroud said, it's really about the actions that we are focused on taking uh, to go forward and really create that change. So we're not having this conversation next year and the year after and the year after, but really making sure that equality is at the forefront, uh, making sure that we can really bring our community to a closer knitted place together. So glad to be here, Heidi, and thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So again, today's conversation for all of the folks who are listening is going to be about business growth and the issues of race, equality, um, and, and diversity in the workplace. And I really want to go to Dr. Fashanta Friday-Stroud because she has done some research on race in the workplace. Um, at Florida a and University, uh, corporate uh, companies from all over the world come to Florida a and University to recruit top talent, black talent, and they take it from Tallahassee to Chicago, LA, and all these other markets. And they're right, the students are right here. And I know she's done a lot of research on race and business. And, and Shante, could you just give us a little bit of information about what you shared with us in our pre-conversations about just talking about race and not marginalizing it in, in discussions yeah. when it comes to business? Yeah, so if you go back and do kind of historical um, analysis of uh, the conversation around race and diversity um, in the workplace. Um, in the early 70s, it was, you know, race, right? So black and white. And then um, as we moved into the 90s, we started to talk about um, diversity. 
And then we moved from diversity to diversity and inclusion. And as we made those shifts, what got marginalized in the process is this topic of black and white. And some say, okay, well, diversity is bigger than just black and white. And yes, it is. But for me, if you don't fix a problem and you just try to gloss over the problem, it's going to flare up again. And so that's why I'm, you know, really excited about this conversation is because I don't think it should be a topic that we should be afraid to discuss and have a conversation on. And we may even agree sometimes to disagree around our conversations. But at the same time, if we don't look at it, then, you know, in business, what gets measured, that's what gets done. And so not doing it from a quota perspective, but doing it from a recognizing that we all have value. We all have things that we bring to the table. And it's the diversity that we bring to the table that can actually move us further than what we would have been before, right? Because it's diversity of thought, diversity of opinions that move us up. And so um, really rather than marginalizing it, I think we need to embrace it discuss it, acknowledge that it exists, and then work to accept um, that, yes, we may be different, but at the end of the day, we're all very, very different. And so by how can we leverage our differences such that, again, we create a bigger pie for everybody to get a larger slice than trying to say, oh, I'm going to separate over here and create my own little pie. And with that little pie, you don't get as much as you would if we had a bigger pie and bigger slices for everybody to get. Yeah. Does anyone on the panel want to follow up on anything that Shantae said before I go to um, a follow-up question in the same vein? Heidi, this is Beth. I love what Dr. Stroud just talked about. Um, one of our challenges as an employer is attracting black candidates to the banking industry. And you actually even pointed out that FAMU produces some fantastic folks that we would love to keep in our community and employ. But for some reason, um, a lot of FAMU graduates leave the Tallahassee market, which I think is the opposite of what you see sometimes with Florida State University. And so what is it about our market that um, FAMU graduates don't find attractive and want to stay here and help us um, build this market in a more equal fashion? Yeah. So I think a lot of that will, it'll boil down to two things. Salary is one issue. And then the other is filling um, value and included. And so in many cases, you have to look at how students feel like they've been treated as students here. So while they may have a great experience on campus, doesn't necessarily mean that that same experience transfers out into the greater community. And so it's, that's for me why it's, we need to look at how do we extend beyond the community, right? So you know, I love that there are a lot, we're doing a lot more programming now to get our students to get out in the city and to see more about what's happening. Um, you know, I can speak for myself, having been a student here at FAMU, uh, leaving Tallahassee was like first on my radar. Um, I will tell you, I'll never forget when I moved back to Tallahassee, I ran into one of my good friends, um, classmates, and he was like, I can't believe the person that walked across the stage at the Leon County Civic Center said, I never live in Tallahassee again, it's back. Well, now that I'm back, I see it as a great place to be, a great place to raise a family. That's not what I saw as a student. And so I think to the extent that 
local businesses can provide a much more inviting and inclusive environment for students that they will see that. I always tell my students, salary should not be your only uh, factor when making a job decision. You need to look at everything in total. So the whole um, compensation package, but also cost of living and all of those things. And so that would put Tallahassee higher on the spectrum if they had higher salaries, but you also want a community that you feel like you can be a part of. And so I think, again, I think there have been a lot of programming um, that has taken place in the last few years um, to have students feel and see more of Tallahassee and feel more inclusive. But historically, that has been, um, I think, one of the challenges. Right. A couple yeah. of the challenges. Yeah. Go, Dom, you want to say, you want yeah, to talk I just about wanna, that? I want to chime in a little bit here. And so my, my undergraduate experience is at Florida Name University, highest of Seven Hills. And my graduate school experience is at Florida State University and had great experiences at both institutions. But when we think about what does it mean to actually attract students to actually live in Tallahassee, um, I think, you know, Dean put it out great as far as looking at salary, but also looking at a community where you feel included. But I think there's other amenities and other elements that students actually look at when they're thinking about these, uh, these first entry-level job decisions, right? And uh, most of it does stem around money, but also it stems around um, a city that is very, um, quote-unquote, perceptually exciting as an Atlanta would be or Miami would be or New York would be. And I think that's a challenge that we have to think through. And I think that also has another realm of inclusion when we think about it, right? And so how do you begin not only to attract the generation, but then the segments within that generation, right? Black, white, Hispanic, and really begin to build inclusive spaces for that. I think generally, as one who um, was a former student here, of course, but then also our population that we serve our students more than anything, um, I think oftentimes the perception from more than established community comparatively to students uh, has ne not necessarily been bridged, right? We, we talk a lot in this community about the town and down relationship. And oftentimes, most of the established uh, community looks at the up and coming as far as students as, ah, they're just students, they're crowded in the streets, uh, they could be good for some talent, but not necessarily cultivating and developing uh, that talent through the ranks, right? Actually providing like the outreach and internships and really starting early to actually cultivate that experience. And I think it's one of the things that really just transformed my experience, like the ability to actually work with um, a politician locally here, and then also work with a, work with a business owner while I was in college, which changed my orientation of Tallahassee. And so, if we don't have even base level programs that begin to stretch abroad that way, then talking about really attracting particularly black talent into the city, it's very difficult to do that. And so, I think across the board, no matter what companies we we own or we run, I think that's a a very unique kind of problem that we have to really begin to dissect um, and move forward in a better manner. Well, we have two business owners on the line, uh, Brian, former business owner, not necessarily running the company, and then also Peter. Would you all like to address the talent, um, things that issues that you face with the diversity of uh, your workforce? I'll chime in. I would say just in general, um, we're always looking for incredible talent, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's tough to find the type of talent that you want. And as far as diversity, that would be awesome if we could get diversity and we could get some of the college students that are at FSU or FAMU uh, that are black uh, men and women to want to be a part 
uh, of our organization. Again, as he, uh, as uh, was, was mentioned before, uh, some of the bigger cities uh, in Atlanta or Miami, uh, sometimes, especially as a younger student, it seems like to be more of an exciting, exciting place. Uh, it seems like Tallahassee, the older you get and and, and and the more mature you get, you start to really appreciate uh, the value that the city brings, a place to raise a, a good family, uh, a, a place just that, that is just really easy going. Uh, but again, we're always looking for uh, for great talent. I know for us um, as a business, uh, you know, and, and students coming out, they want more than just a job. Uh, they want to be able to see that job and say, you know, but if I work hard and if I do what I'm supposed to do, what type of opportunity do I have to move up the chain? Uh, what opportunity do I have to be a manager and maybe eventually uh, be an owner one day? And so, again, I think it's if I do want to attract that type of, of talent and get that talent, I have to map out a really, really good plan uh, for these students to say, look, if, if you do what you're supposed to do, boy, you can move up the ranks and you can really, really do something special here uh, at Legacy Toyota. And again, it's difficult to do. Uh, there's only so many jobs and so many positions uh, that we have to offer. But uh, again, when we get one of those positions, uh, we really, really have to make it attractive. And we really, really have to uh, look at that applicant and say, you know what, if you're part of us, uh, we'll make it a special place and you can really move up and really do great things if you, if, if you uh, really work hard in our organization. Mm-hmm. I think Brian, Brian wanted to say something, Katrina, and then I'll come to you, okay? Yeah, let me jump in real quick. Um, you know, we in my in my company, actually, I think back on this, we had uh, almost 50 employees when at one point, and we were majority minority. But to the the comment about students here in town and the experience they have, I mean, I think Dr. Stroud makes a good point. But I think it's incumbent on the businesses in the community, the the people in this community, to make sure that we embrace the students, because as was pointed out, the majority of the students leave here after four years or six years or eight years, depends on how long it takes you to get through. And, you know, they've had, uh, they know Tennessee Street, they know the stadium, they know the fraternity house and, and the school they went to. I, I mean, I can't tell you the stories of pe- kids that I've run into over the years and they um, were a biker, for instance, and they go out and they bike uh, on a pace line out Mixookie Road at sunrise. And they have said, I never left. Or they go to the coast or they get a chance to go something outside of the framework with the school. And I think it's incumbent on us to reach out and bring those kids into our businesses and give them a chance. And as Peter pointed out, you know, there are a lot of jobs in this community. And I think, you know, Dr. Stroud, not, I don't think this is the case for you, but I think a lot of the faculty, unfortunately, say there are no jobs here. You really need to go to Atlanta, Miami, New York, and somewhere else, a major metropolitan area. Um, at a minimum, we'd love to have these students have a good experience so that if they, if they don't, if they leave, they come back, you know, because what happens is they get to New York and go, wow, this isn't exactly what I'd hoped. I, I, I'm the reverse. I grew up here in town, went to Florida State, and could not get out of town fast enough. And I moved out west for a couple of years and realized, wow, it's a nice town. And I've come back, come back and raised all my children here, and they've gone to the same schools, I, and I had a great experience. But um, it, 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 we need to, as a community, I think, do a better job of embracing the students and getting them out, getting them engaged in the community. So, Katrina, one more point on students, and then I want to shift gears to talk about uh, everybody else other than students, people who live here. Um, Well, I was going to address something what Beth said when she was saying how to get more minorities into her workplace, and and it went to the students. 
um, if, you know, step by step, it starts with the culture of, of the workplace itself and the head of the workplace itself. And sometimes uh, we culturally, even I catch myself, uh, we don't understand each other's culture and um, it's not always welcoming. Even though we think it's welcoming um, and we're being, um, we're doing our same, same normal routine, I check myself every day um, to make sure that I'm culturally correct and not offending anyone. And sometimes when people don't feel received, when they walk into different work cultures, they're not gonna, um, uh, especially these, um, the young adults now, they're, they're just, just not gonna be, they'd be like, okay, not today. So it's, it's basically setting the, the culture there and it starts with the ones at the top. And, and being over and above. And sometimes we at the top, because I've never started in a low level position, me at the top, I, I have to say, okay, how does this person feel? And whether they're trying to make it to work. So it's, it's, it's the culture shift within each, every business here. So we can try and talk about welcoming the students, but until we go business by business and checking the block to say, am I really being offensive to everyone in here? Not just white and black and just welcoming everybody. Is this a welcoming environment where my employees want to stay? And that's something to ask. So Katrina, when you say the, the welcoming, can you give an example? I mean, is it that the, they don't feel respected? Do, I mean, because I, I have not heard that, but I, I'm, I'm assuming you've heard young people say, I went into a place for an interview or an experience and it was unpleasant. Is that, is that how, what you've heard? Because it would help us business owners as leaders in the business community to, you know, have more conversations since we're trying to create change and, and do things done differently. Yeah. And, and, and instead of saying what, what I've heard, I've experienced it. So and instead of just saying what I've heard, I've experienced it numerous of times. And, 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 you know, it goes on all different levels of being equal, uh, being a female, being black. Um, I'm going to put a short joke in there, being short, um, maybe I don't stand that high in my heels or something like that. Or um, I've even had to dumb myself down on my resumes so that I won't be smarter than my white counterparts. I've had to, um, you know, just just not go all in, even though I may have a passion. But when a, when a black female has a passion for something, we are pulled off as being aggressive or knowing too much or you understand what I'm saying? And see, I'm getting loud right now. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm just calm down, you know, cause I get all loud and excited and, and it's just part of our culture. We go to yelling at each other and they, um, other people may think that it's offensive. <laughs> so and that's why I've experienced so much um, and that's why I have a passion for doing what I'm doing um, in the Capital City Chamber and helping businesses change that mindset that, I mean, just when, when these employees walk into the door, they want to feel welcome. No, they're not at home. We expect for them to respond. But think about how you want to feel and how you want to be treated when you come to work every day. And we're, that's why people don't want to go back to, I mean, COVID-19 is not being that bad because nobody want to go back. 
<laughs> okay. Thank you, Katrina. We have a question from our uh, audience, and it says, uh, do you have programs connecting businesses and universities to establish internships and mentorships to open the relationships with the students and the community? And I do know that um, we do have programs with the Tallahassee Chamber uh, that begun um, around my term as chair. Uh, Katrina, Antonio, programs that you all are doing, can you share? So, um, so yes, so, so we have a collegiate chapter that, that we've involved at Florida A&M University. I don't, you know, I, I honestly don't think that our issue is, is really the businesses and the, or specifically the chambers making the connection with these kids. Uh, as we think about why people, why uh, people move and build and grow uh, in various places, I think we got to take an honest look at ourselves. And as an African-American in this community, uh, as I look around, and not to say that our community is not a great community, I, I've got a different view of it as, as I've gotten older. But when I was much younger in this community, I asked myself, why would I stay here? You know, what are the real opportunities for African-Americans in this community? And I, and I know that we, you know, spend a lot of time in, in talking and have proven ourselves outside of this community of being an all-American city and, and being a number of things. But, you know, it, it, as I think about it and as I think about our, our introduction uh, to students at Florida A&M uh, into this community, especially in the business community, as they look down and through this community, who do they have to inspire after? I mean, uh, Peter has done a wonderful job in this community of setting the stage as an African-American owner of a, of a major corporation. But how many others are there uh, that they can look to? Well, I could go to Atlanta and I can find many of African-Americans that are in places where I want to be and just looking at it from the student perspective. But as an older adult with kids, with, you know, I have a 13 year old and eight year old and, uh, and a couple of adult girls, Tallahassee is a wonderful place to be. Uh, and, and, and I have found all of my dreams as a, as a working professional, a mature working professional to be able to be achieved here. But as far as connecting students here, we still have a lot of, a long way to go. And I would say to all of our businesses, it, it, you're, the reason you're not getting there with these, these students, you have to ask yourself how you're trying to get them in. An, an advertisement in a newspaper, participation and in, in investment in a community event is not going to get it. It's, it's, it's your long-term investment in these places. It's the, it's the seeing, these kids seeing, or younger adults, seeing African-Americans like Peter in, in, in places that they can say, hey, this, this is a place that if I, if, if I do the hard work that's needed, that I can, that I can grow. But uh, your question was really about what we're doing as a chamber. Yes, we're, we're, we encourage our, our kids to see Tallahassee as a place to not only, uh, you know, raise a great family and, and the safety and security that we all enjoy in this community, but to see it. But it, it's hard. It's, it's very hard when you think about I can go to Atlanta, New York, and make a lot of money and then come back here and find it as my resting place uh, in my uh, more mature years of life.
Yeah, so the, so to the audience member who sent in the question, um, all of our chambers of commerce and our universities are collaborating to bring students into our workplaces. I get interns every year from both Florida State and Florida a and University. Uh, right now I have a FSU student and a family student uh, in my agency and have been doing so since I was working in television news at Channel 40, you know, 22 years ago bringing in college students, because that's how I learned, uh, being able to go into the workforce and, and learn in real time what it's like to be in business. Um, so let me, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, just our, our, our city as a whole. You know, we hear a lot that it's very segregated. Uh, you know, not everyone knows who the black businesses are. We actually received a question from someone saying, is there a black uh, list, a list of all the black businesses in the Tallahassee area? And I do believe that our Congressman Austin got the Capital City Black Pages for those who are not aware. So there is a list. Let's talk about doing business while black in Tallahassee. And Peter, you want to share a little bit about uh, your position within the dealerships. Uh, you have a, you're one of the minority in, in, in auto automotive uh, dealerships ownership. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can talk about it more from a regional standpoint and really from a national standpoint. Um, I represent uh, Toyota North America. And uh, really, I wish I could say that I own the dealership because I'm smart. I was a great student. But really, the only reason I want, I'm, I'm here is because I played in the NFL. And honestly, I had to pay a lot of money to buy a seat at the table to be a part of Toyota. And when I look at it, the, 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 you take a black woman, you, you, you don't have a chance in this industry. It's difficult. I'm one of, like I said the other day, I'm one of, there's only four out of 177 dealers in the in Toyota, this it's just we have been completely out. It's been frustrating, and so again, I'm just I'm excited for this time in, in history, and hopefully, I'll get the, the the chance to be able to sit down uh, with some of the the executives uh, from the corporate level, and first of all, get them to realize, look, uh, we have an issue. And I think right now, I don't think they realize that uh, from a corporate level, uh, there's an issue. I don't think that they realize that black men and women are being shut out of the automotive industry. And so first and foremost, they need to recognize that. And then number two, we've got to come up with a plan uh, to level the playing field. And, and again, unfortunately, with corporate America, they move very slowly. And a lot of times they don't, um, uh, they don't want to hear us. Uh, I've had several conversations and really... The only thing that I, I want from corporate America is we need more opportunities for black men and women to own. And uh, it seems like when I ask for that, that's the holy grail. And I always get diverted. They're always, they always want to give me, uh, maybe let's give a scholarship. Let's give a mentoring program. And I'm like, I don't want the crumbs. We want to own. And we want, we, want, we want what you want. And so, again, it's it's, it's incredibly frustrating um, in, in the corporate world to try to first and foremost let them realize, you know what, you're shutting us out. But number two, we won't change now and we really don't want uh, just a small change. We don't want just a, a donation to a small program. We want ownership. And uh, that's the very thing that you're holding on to. Uh, these franchise rights that you give out, you need to give those franchise rights to black men and women. We are capable. 
it's a shame that there's only four out of 177 um, uh, dealers out there. And so there's enough capable black men and women out there. Uh, we just want opportunities. Uh, you give us opportunities and uh, we'll create the change in the community. And so it's an incredible fight uh, in the corporate world. And again, uh, it's going to be a long fight. But again, I'm hopeful that um, uh, I'm all in and hopefully, you know, they'll hear me. Hopefully they will marginalize me. But again, it's a fight worth fighting. And I think in the in the environment that we we're in, uh, their eyes are open and it takes someone to step up and lead and say, you know what, we're not going away until you give us what we want and we want ownership. We want this playing field leveled and hopefully we'll get that done. Um, but it's going to be a tough fight for us. Well, we got your back. So, so uh, Heidi, I think here's a place to jump in. And, and I think that what Peter is expressing is what a lot of African-American-owned businesses or, or businesses that are owned by people of color. Uh, listen, this is a tough place to be out there. It's a tough to be competitive. But taking that off the table, if you don't have simple things, the simple uh, infrastructure in place, and then let me just start with access to capital for a lot of our minority-owned businesses in this community. Mm-hmm. Access to capital is a, is, is a crucial thing. And, you know, and, and listen, I think that there are things that we have power in, and I think a lot of that power rests in our community and government because we, we're predominantly a government city. Uh, because we're the capital, but we've got two large governments uh, uh, here uh, that work very well together. But our thing is, is that we are getting crumbs, uh, you know, as, as we think about how we've made investments in building and growing minority businesses. Um, we've had a recent discussion with some of our leaders in this community about, uh, you know, how the city and county participate and, and, and grow minority-owned businesses, and, and and I just asked myself, you know, in 2003, where were we? Uh, in, 2000, in 2020, I'm, I'm, t- I'm here to tell you that for minority-owned businesses, we're almost in the same space, um, you know, and, and it's going to take a lot of courage to do better than what we've done. It's not to say that, that, that the people that have been at the levers of power especially relative to access to capital, have just said, look, you know, we don't want to lend to black folks, so we don't want to help black businesses. I don't think that that's the issue. But we have tripped over ourselves with policies and, and, and things that we say, oh, well, we got to do it this way because it checks the box in this way. I'm saying in this moment that we, we uh, this generation, has got to step out on faith and believe in the Peter Bowers of the world, to believe in the Antonio Jeffersons of the world and say, you know what, I am going to take a chance. I'm gonna make an investment in something that's gonna create an opportunity for my, my two boys to see Tallahassee as a place to remain and stay and grow a business, uh, take advantage of, of being here. And I'll, I'll land here, Chef, Chef Shack is in our community, have won national awards she can't even get a loan to open up a business. Why? Because unfortunately, she's not bankable. Unfortunately, she didn't have, uh, didn't grow up with a family that had an abundance of resources. And I'm saying that when you got somebody like that that's got a talent and a skill, this community should reach his arm around it and take a take a chance and make an investment in that. And and listen, if we don't take advantage of this moment, 
it will never happen for African-Americans in this community. And if we don't do it now, now is not tomorrow. Now is now. Is now. And I think we've got to take care of that. But thank you. Thank you, Antonio. Um, we got a couple of questions from the audience, but then I saw Dom put his hand up. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to add some context around that. I mean, you know, as one who's running a startup company here in Tallahassee, um, and even in my first startup company that I had here in Tallahassee, right after I graduated from Florida State, uh, you know, talking to investors, kind of like angel investors and also VCs that were here in Tallahassee, I just remember talking to roughly about 54 uh, solid investors. And I know for a fact that we had a bankable company uh, from a tech perspective, but most of the times when you're, when you're in the South, if people don't have a similar hue as you, oftentimes they're not necessarily familiar with your culture, how you move and how you operate. And to put that in context, when you think about just like the funding landscape, you know, Antonio talked about access to capital. 1% of all venture capital funds and managers are actually black and Hispanic, 1% out of the total, okay? When you think about that and you look at the number of venture-backed companies that were black, that's actually 1% as well. If you go down to black women, you're talking about 0.002% of black women businesses have actually been funded by venture capital. Now, let's put this in context. If you think about all the products and services that we interact with, one right now called Zoom that we're on right now, venture-backed, Roughly about 40 to 50% of the products and services that we engage with as Americans are venture backed. Okay. When you look at like how that begins to impact national, regional, and now on a local level, all that just stems down. Right. And so when we think about things like access to capital, you know, Peter said it frankly, if I wasn't in the NFL, like honestly, I probably wouldn't have been in this seat because I had to buy my way to sit at the table. Okay. Now, Peter made it to a space where he was able to actually amass some cash and make it happen and, and, and carve that lane, right? Well, if you're going to block me out, well, I have the money to sit at the table, so just make some room, right? Now, when you think about how do, be, how do Blacks begin to access capital, but how do families begin to access capital, I really encourage everybody to read this book by Richard Rothstein, a Jewish brother out of California, who wrote The Color of Law. And it's, the subtitle is How the Federal Government Segregated America. When you think about a lot of the policies that have passed and exclusionary policies that have passed for blacks to actually access capital after abolishment of slavery, what you end up having is that these exclusionary policies that prohibited blacks from actually accessing capital from the federal government to purchase homes, right? We all know a lot of people on the panel are part of the banking community. We all know that a home is a, is a lot of equity from a standpoint of passing that down from generation to generation. And when you think about when that was actually corrected, which was only in the civil rights era, and I think 1967 when the civil rights law passed, then you're talking about 100 years, right, of blacks not being able to access capital just of their own, from taking the houses, passing that down, leverage that to actually utilize capital to actually invest in their own companies, when the truth of the matter is people that were sitting at the table who didn't look like them weren't investing. And so... I think it's very important to just put that in context. Like this isn't Peter's like feelings or Antonio's feelings or someone's like experiences in the space. Like the data just shows it. And so like now again, it's okay, how does Tallahassee step up and make true policy change, make plans, not just the crumbs, right? Because the reality is as one who's like paving a lot of access and pathways for people to do this for a long term, kind of just tired of having the conversation right? It goes, it goes beyond like painting Black Lives Matter on the street. 
it's a good nod. It's very like we appreciate it big time, but it goes beyond that because the reality is the conversation that we should be having is around innovation. The conversation that we should be having is around cultural collaboration and really taking what we're doing in our community to the next level instead of having this conversation of the early 1900s that's now persisted to the to 2020. I mean, it's it's getting old. Yeah. Thank you, Dom. You know, I was reading this morning just a couple of articles about, you know, what's happening in America when it comes to race. And I found this really interesting article that bolded very big in the article. It is literally against the law to discriminate. It is against the law at the federal level to discriminate. And so when we talk about policies and systematic changes, you have people that are making the decisions for, on a policy. So is policy enough? Are policies enough? No, How do we no, change no. the actions of the people that are making the decisions? Yeah, because welcome- it is against the law yeah. to discriminate. No, I don't, I don't think it is. I think Katrina had pointed out something around cultural competency and awareness, right? When I, as a black man, walk into a table and it's nothing but white investors that I'm speaking to, right? The reality is we didn't grow up in the same community, okay? Potentially we did, probably not, okay? So when you get a sense of how do they begin to socialize the image of me speaking, talking, maybe, you know, correct, politically correct, not politically correct, whatever that may be, there's a, there's a process of our socialization and our biases of how we begin to make decisions, right? And one, one would say in the Bay community, you have machine learning, artificial intelligence now. But when you think about that, it's pulling on decisions from the past that have discriminated against minorities around housing loans, interest rates, right? And so now a lot of that information needs to be rectified and corrected. So therefore, me who's actually applying for a loan to actually like buy a third house is not actually being discriminated upon based on the numbers of the past, right? So I don't think it's enough and I'll stop there because I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some of the other panelists and they look they want to jump in. But I just, it's just not enough. It's just not enough. So, Diane, yes, Commissioner Cox. I was going to say, no one would believe that I've sat here this quiet for this long. But the floor no is yours. Listen, no one's invited me into the conversation. So um, let, me just, let me just pull up my own chair into this conversation. Yes, ma'am. Um, let me just say this. I'm listening to what we're talking about. And it could be summed up in, into three words. Black Lives Matter. Because what we're talking about is how to keep black students in Tallahassee, you know, in, 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 in business. How do you do that? You ask them. You got to go recruit them. Mm-hmm. I graduated from Florida and m They come from Detroit. They come from, uh, from uh, Miami. They come from Atlanta. They come in and make you want to come to work for their companies. They recruit you. They don't wait for you to call them. I, I grew up in Quincy, went to Florida and m interned at General Motors in, in, um, in Detroit two summers, which opened my eyes to the availability. Now, Detroit was too cold for me. I, I couldn't be there in the wintertime, but I took a job in Central Florida. But then I came back to Tallahassee because I grew up in Quincy and I wanted to be closer to my family. So I came here to raise my family. So if you want to keep and retain talent here, you got to go looking for it. You got to go ask about it. You, you got to invite them to come and come to the party. Uh, they're not going to come looking for you. They're not going to go look at an ad in the paper. Um, and we got to also remember that the city of Tallahassee has a tempo program, that what we've done with this tempo program is taken students, not 
college students, but students. We got to understand that they're trade students. They're students who are never going to go to college, but will make more money than college students. And we've got to embrace them, give them an opportunity. We, so we bring these students in, help them get their GED, uh, give them training. We're having a, a graduation. We just graduated, I think, the third cohort. Uh, Kimball Thomas is doing a tremendous job with that. We're going to talk about it at the city commission meeting tomorrow. We're doing things to try to keep talent here. But you've got to train the talent. You've got to want the talent. And you've got to invite them to the table. They're not going to go looking for the table because the table moves. You know, we change locations and, you know, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to do that. We've also got to encourage businesses. Uh, I see someone put a, put a question in there that the, the fastest growing business is the black female, uh, black owned businesses, black female owned businesses. Why are there none on this panel? Well, I do own a business. I just don't have time to do, to work with it. And you own a business. I don't have time to work with it. But nevertheless, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us to make sure that we retain the talent. And um, we're not just painting Black Lives Matter on the street. It is a statement, but behind that statement is an awful lot of work that has been going on. This commission has been working very, very hard to try to level the playing field. We've done things to help small businesses. We've done things to help minority businesses. The disparity study that came out that showed that there has been um, businesses, minority businesses have been shorted. We're now doing those kinds of things to make sure that there's room at the table. If the table isn't big enough, we're trying to make a bigger table so that everyone gets an opportunity because closed mouths don't get fed. And so what we're hearing is that we need help. And so I can speak for the city commission and I can speak for the county commission because we're all working together to try to create that synergism to, to make sure we're, we're responding to the needs of our community. Not to say that previous commissions didn't do that. We're doing some, trying to do some creative things. When COVID hit, we looked at where could we find money by delaying projects to try to keep those businesses afloat. We came up with $2 million. What other community did something like that, you know, to try to keep businesses going? I, I would, would venture not many. But is there more work to be done? Absolutely, there's more work to be done. Are we the smartest people on the planet? We're the only ones who know? Absolutely not. We have to have these kinds of conversations, real, true conversations. I will tell you that um, since last night, I have seen so many negative comments about the painting of Black Lives Matter on the street. If we could take that energy and turn that around, and those people who are making those negative comments pull out their wallets and their purses and put some money on the table so that we can help people here in our community, then we'll understand why it is important in this moment in time, Antonio Jefferson, that we have to declare that Black lives do matter because we know that all lives matter, but we do know that when other lives uh, get a sneeze, we get pneumonia. We saw that with COVID. So we've got to be intentional. We've got to be intentional and have those hard conversations. These panel discussions are great, but we've got to go deeper, y'all. We've we, we got to be real in the conversation. Are we going to just keep coming together, having these conversations? What you say, Dominique, since 1920? In 2020, we're still having the same yeah. conversations? Yeah, exactly. That's not yeah. going to work. That's not going to work. Yeah, so I'm going to go to Beth, and then I'm going to go to Katrina, and then I want to go to both of our commissioners to talk a little bit about the policy piece. 
and, and what you all are doing. So Beth and then Katrina. Thank you, Heidi. And thank you, Commissioner Cox. Um, I think what you said was very important. And that's one of the things that as the Greater Tallahassee Chamber has come together with other organizations um, for the Aspire Capital Region Collective. And Aspire, if you're not aware, um, is bringing together a number of different players like Lively, TCC, private business, chambers of commerce, et cetera, to develop that skills path that will help um, folks who are not necessarily uh, cut out, as you mentioned, to go to college or maybe struggling with school, but they would be excellent at a trade. And as you mentioned, that is a skill need and it is a high paying job yeah. that man right now. So um, we're proud of being part of that collective um, to close that skills gap for both our um, community, uh, community, sometimes I lose my words, um, the people that live in our community and our employers in our community. Um, Thank you for mentioning that that is an issue that needs to be addressed in our community. And I know there are a number of things, as you mentioned, Tempo, we've got the Aspire, but we've got to come together collectively to put that in place and encourage um, our community members who need that lift to get them to the place where Dominic and Peter have talked about in terms of whether it's coming to Dominic because all of a sudden they realize they've got a great entrepreneurial spirit um, and they're looking for investors or for Peter not having to go out and have a career in the NFL to be uh, a major player at the table of a, a business in our community. So thank you for mentioning that. Katrina. Hi, Beth. Welcome to losing your words. It comes with age, but um, <laughs> I lose mine all the time. Um, but one of the things I, I just want to um, mention and that a lot of the businesses here I see and I experience as a business owner myself and I am a business owner. A lot of the businesses here and the minority businesses here, we it's so hard sometimes to get the contract and just like what Mr. Jefferson said, or even sit at a table with any of our um, higher up or decision makers within the community or even in a business. When I go to meetings, I see the same group. We have wonderful people um, on, on campus and professors that have businesses, but majority of them, they do business out of town because it's so hard to maneuver through um, the politics here in Tallahassee. Um, and then I am just happen to be one of those people that can sit at multiple tables. I can sit at multiple tables. I can fit in. I, you know, I, I can make it happen and still true, be true to myself. So, you know, this question would go to Commissioner Deloge or, or, or Beth, how awkward feeling when, when we say um, that the Black Lives Matter or the businesses, the Black businesses are not moving forward and you feel like you have done your best um, and you have put forth your effort. What do you think, what, what energy do you feel from that? And what would you, um, I know everybody's at the time of listening, but how can you talk a little bit about how do you feel and, and you at the top? And I know we're going to pivot to that conversation because Heidi say we're going to ask from the commissioners of the policy making. Yeah, um, yeah we're going to pivot to that conversation. But as 
a, a white business, how do you feel when we keep saying black lives matter or the black businesses are not getting enough? I just want to. That's respond. actually one of the questions we got from someone in the group asking first. The first question was Tallahassee has a reputation for being heavily driven by politics and connections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. how do uh, we encourage those from outside of those networks to pursue business opportunities in our communities? So, that was one question. And then another was along the lines of, you know, our community is segregated and that black businesses don't get the same. Um, support as the white businesses in our community. So I'm kind of lumping those two together. I see your hand up. Well, I'll, I'll answer Katrina's question first, and it'll probably go a little bit to the questions that were asked from the audience. Um, I will tell you with regard to Black Lives Matter and what's been happening and the um, heightened awareness of what's going on in our country. For me personally, it's embarrassing because I believe what you said, I believe that as an organization, and I'm, I'm talking about the bank today because I am technically the diversity officer for the bank, and I've worked very hard um, to look at policies and adjust and felt like we were doing the right things. And I do believe we're doing the right things, but we're not doing enough of the right things. And I'll give you an example. Um, Number one, I have gone back and we have got right now a multi-purpose review, both internally and externally, about how we work with minority businesses, with minority candidates, primarily black, in light of what we're talking about tonight. And as I looked through our list of vendors that we use and understand that as a financial institution, we do like to do business with our clients. Um, but our representation of Black-owned businesses in the vendors that we regularly use is embarrassing. Um, I've already had a conversation uh, with our CEO about it. Um, I have begun to work with the uh, folks who manage vendor relationships uh, with a mandate that we have to do better. Um, I don't know that that's a percentage or that's a quota but we have to do better than what we're doing today. And so when I tell you I'm embarrassed when I hear Black Lives Matters, I'm embarrassed because I don't know that we're doing enough or that we understand what we should be doing to help impact the change. But again, as kind of our chief diversity officer, I, I am committed to improving and making sustainable change. As I mentioned to you, we have done some things in recognition of what's going on in our country in the last six weeks. That is not the end of what the bank intends to do on a go forward, whether that's um, better diversity on our boards of directors, whether that's better diversity at our management table, um, whether that is giving our black owned businesses in the 17 communities that we represent, not just in Tallahassee, but outside of Tallahassee, making sure that those folks are at the table for the opportunity um, whether that's investment and involvement in community organizations that are focused primarily on uh, the black members of our community and helping lift them up. Um, I'm committed to that. And that work has begun in earnest. Um, again, just reviewing everything we're doing with a fresh look um, as I continue to listen and absorb where the challenges are to that inclusion uh, that um, everyone deserves to have. So, and, and I'm so sorry, Heidi, but thank you. And that also goes about 
to the the question that the community asks us all the time is three chambers on this on this call right, right here. i have questions about that how are what, you all you know it's, it's a reason for that um and for you know and it started way before i even came to tallahassee and started well i was a student i'm, I'm not gonna tell my age but um uh, it started back when when we had to split. It was not enough minority participation in in one of the chambers, so it, it broke off into another chambers. And then the equity also comes when different pockets of people just can't communicate communicate right. I get that, um, but what are we going to do now? It's been um, talk about it. We sit at the table about it, but no action. And so I'm just moving forward from this from this um, intentional conversation. Everybody putting everything on the table. I think it should be the conversation shouldn't just be conversations. It should actually be community driven to show our community that everybody is is working together to do policy changes. Yeah, I want to go to Brian because you know one of the questions was Tallahassee has a reputation for being heavily driven by politics and connections, and Brian, I'd like to get your take on that. Sure. So um, if you look at um, the local governments between the city commission, the county commission, and the school board, and include Blueprint, we've got uh, $2 billion a year we're rolling through this community. So by no means is local government kind of a mom and pop anymore. And, it's, and, and frankly, we're at a moment in time, as you guys were talking about earlier, where we need to make some changes. We need to make some differences. And Antonio and I were having a conversation earlier this week about you know, the problem is we have all these MBE programs and we try and, and, and meet these guidelines. And, and oftentimes the concern is, well, we don't have enough qualified candidates. Well, how do we raise them up? I know OEB has got some programs out there to try and figure out. But there's some funds rolling through the system right now, care money, which is designed to try and supplant and fill the holes from what's happened with the COVID. Um, there's an opportunity potentially to do some lending, and, and Antonio and I were talking about this earlier, about potentially helping out some of the minority businesses and giving them a leg up. I don't want to get in the banking space by any stretch, but there's, lend, there's, there's opportunities to potentially lend some money in some cases where the banks probably wouldn't participate, um, and we can get somebody over the hoop hump and get them in the game. But the reality is if we keep doing things the way we've been doing them all along, we're going to get the same results, which is not, as was pointed out earlier, we're standing still and just treading water. So there are legal parameters and things that we can't go outside of. You know, I can't force things. There's, there's things that we get legally bound by. But the reality is, and nobody's a better champion for this than Commissioner Williams Cox. She's always on her game over there. Um, but... <laughs> It's a, I mean, the city, the county, and the schools, it's big business, and, I, and, and people need to pay attention because we are rolling a lot of money through this community, and who you elect is important and how, you, how this gets done. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the answer is. The only other thing I will say is that I spent four years rolling around the country, all 50 states, and whereas in the private sector, if you've got a, a, a better mousetrap, you're not going to show anybody else because it's your competitive advantage. In government, we need to do a better job of sharing best practices. And there are some best practices in this space around the country. So if you hear of a community and you think they're doing a better job, I'd love to be able to pick up the phone and talk to some of the elected leaders and say, how'd you do it? Because there's no you know, uh, uh, pride of authorship there. And it's frankly, they ought to be able to share this type of thing. So anyway, I don't know, a little bit of rambling, but um, we can't continue to do things the way we've always done them. 
So Heidi, if I can, if I can jump in and, and, and say that uh, politics and connections is, that is how things have gotten to where they are. Tallahassee is 196 years old. And, uh, and as, as uh, Bev said, she, you know, she, she was embarrassed. Well, I'm the second elected black female to the city commission in 196 years. You talk about embarrassing. And, and then we have um, another uh, black female on the, on the commission as well. So for the first time in 196 years, we have a, um, commission at, a city commission that has three black uh, commissioners. That is unheard of. And I must, and you must know that in this time of institutional and systemic racism uh, and sexism, that is not acceptable to some people. So during, during the political season, the campaign season, there's an onslaught of, of uh, opportunities that uh, people are, are using to try to change that dynamic. And my, my, my position on that is, you know, you vote however you want to vote. Um, but the, the thing of it is just understand that elections have consequences. And if you want something different from what it has been in the past, then you vote in your own best interest to have that. And so having a, a commission and, and even at the, the county, the county is missing the demographic. I must admit, the city's missing a demographic. But what we've got to do is when we come together, we, 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 we blend and we work to make our communities better. So if you want to break up that, that, um, that politics and, and connection that, that has, has historically happened, then change the dynamics. Make sure that the players at the table don't look like the players of the past because the players of the past are the ones who kept things like they are and kept things out of the reach of some folks. But but those of us who are there now, we're trying to uh, position the whole community so that they can reach and that they can, they, they're able to obtain. The city has a CRA. Uh, once upon a time, the city and the county were together on it, but there's a, there's a, a CRA. That's, a, that's kind of a bank. And what, what happens there is um, that CRA, the, the, the current CRA, the Greater Frenchtown Southside CRA, has been there for almost 20 years. And there has been little... Uh, almost, almost none to little uh, movement on bringing um, minorities to the table to get a piece of that pie to make some things happen in these communities. Well, you must know that we're keenly focused on that because we have to make sure that we redistribute the wealth. And you've heard me say this before, and, and I, I don't bite my tongue when I say this, and I don't mean to offend anyone when I say it, but everything we need to fix um, problems with poverty and uh, those kinds of things in our community, the solutions are here. They are right here. It, it takes money. It takes time. It takes creativity. It takes collaboration. And I, I often have said the haves have got to be willing to share with the have-nots because if the have-nots don't get some of the things that they need, then they will come to your home and begin to shop at your home and, or go fishing in your yard for unlocked cars uh, um, for weapons and for other things. So you either pay on the front end or you pay on the back end. And I won't get into how much it costs to to pay for people being incarcerated or for people being in, in, in prison because they can't make bail. It is cheaper, in my opinion, to take care of it on the front end than to take care of it on the back end. Now, I must admit that this past weekend, the 4th of July celebration, I got a little juiced up this weekend. I watched uh, 13, which, you know, if you've, ever, if you've seen this movie, you understand what that means. That, you know, uh, Amendment 13 that was passed, 
um, that, that freed slaves, well, it freed you from being in slavery unless you committed a crime. If you committed a crime, then you continue to be enslaved. And that is what we see in these mass incarcerations that our country is experiencing and the broken families that's causing a lot of this poverty in our community. So if you want things to change, then you've got to put people in place who, uh, as, as uh, my, my friend on the county commissioner, would say, county commissioner would say, ain't afraid to make the change that needs to be made. So Commissioner, um, having said that about the um, criminal justice system, I would encourage everyone to go back and watch the previous panel discussion uh, hosted by the Village Square, Bethel Missionary Baptist Church and Sachs Media on that subject. Uh, we had Ben Crump, we had an, uh, the uh, U.S. State Attorney and others talking about it, and it was a really, really good conversation. So I would encourage folks to go watch that. Um, I want to get Dr. Shante Friday Stroud back into the conversation with a question comment um, that came in where we have the Cultural Intelligence Project writes that businesses that successfully pursue inclusion where diversity and differences are seen as assets far outperform businesses with conventional human resource practices. However, businesses that do not pursue inclusion authentically do worse than businesses with standard practices. And the question was thoughts on that. Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of it depends on the definition, right? So what's your definition of diversity? If your diver definition of diversity is around thought and um, all these other factors, yes, then it may be. If your diversity of inclusion and, and, and having, underst or having an understanding of the historical perspective, inclusion was to make really white men feel like they weren't being left out of the diversity conversation. And so, um, again, I think if we all come to the table and own whatever our issues are and then work past them, um, we, we can make some change. So I would suggest um, a, a study that everybody should look at, and it's over 50 years old. It was done by Jane Elliott, the brown-eyed and blue-eyed experience. Basically, what it shows is that racism is taught. We all come here, and if you think about it, if you put a bunch of little kids um, together to play, they play with everybody. They don't look at color or anything like that. As we get older, you get conditioned, you get taught. And so then you start to seg segregate yourselves based on different features. So whether it be the color of your skin, well, uh, Jane Elliott, a white female educator who, you know, was a pioneer in this whole diversity, and it wasn't called diversity back then, 50 plus years ago, but landscape. But basically what she did is she took white kids in a rural town and showed them what diversity was. It was during, you know, the, the, uh, the civil rights era, and they were watching it and trying to get them to understand what was around that. And so she used the color eye and a collar, different color, color collar that she put around their neck and told them one group, oh, you're smart because of the color of your eyes and the collar you have on, and then vice versa. And so kids who had been playing together for all of their lives, all of a sudden, because of being told something, being taught something, now didn't get along. And so she ran that experiment, flipped it, so the others could see. And then basically at the end of the, her experiment was to get people to see that 
No one wants to be mistreated because of something perceived, right? Um, and so really what I think we have to get at is, you know, um, Commissioner Williams Cott talked about the systemic racism, right? These are things that are taught, that are passed down. Some of them actually may be subliminal, right? That we don't even necessarily think about it because we've, you've been doing it all your life, so it's just normal. And I think, you know, Katrina made the comment about being intentional. And Heidi, you said we have to be intentional about our actions and really look and say, are we that different, right? Because I would say outside of the color of our skin, we all want, you know, a healthy place to live. We all want healthy food to eat. We all want, you know, to experience and live the American dream, right? But because of the color of our skin, we should be treated differently. And so I really think that it, that's from an educational perspective, right? But that then transcends everything else that we do from a business perspective. You know, Beth talked about like, hey, seeing this, I got to stop and take a look. I, I got to do an analysis. I got to do an assessment based on my results of that analysis and assessment. I got to do something different. That's intentional. That's one acknowledging it. That's then saying, hey, I got to be purposeful about making a change. And again, we're not saying make a change based on numbers, but make a change based on what's right, what's honest, what's there before you. Because many times people get excluded just because you never get a chance to get to know them. Somebody may have an awesome skill set, but you never know because you say, oh, we're different and we automatically exclude you. So I would just like us to be much more purposeful about finding more of our commonalities than accentuating our differences. Because at our core, everybody wants us a safe life. I mean, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, you have some basic needs that we all want. And then we all want to move up that ladder to self-actualization. Black people want it. White people want it. Hispanic people want it. Asian people. Like, that's what everybody wants. That's why people come to the U.S. And even those that may not come for for the choice, but because we're here, that's what we should all work together towards. Again, to me, we will accomplish way more together than we ever will divide it. And I just hope that, again, we move beyond talk to real action and really be purposeful about bringing everybody to the table, capitalizing on everybody's strength, because if we do that, Tallahassee will be even greater than what we think it is now. Amen. <laughs> and everybody want to feel important and included. Yeah, amen. We have a few more minutes before we um, are going to wrap up this wonderful discussion. So we're going to go into a lightning round, and I'm going to just just ask a couple of questions that we received. Um, so the first question is, have you sensed an increase in support of Black businesses since racial equality is more of a topic of public conversation? Lightning round. Katrina. Yes, we have, but it needs to be um, not just for these to the end of December to the care right money run out. Okay, Shanta. And I was going to say, I do it all the time, um, but I think that's just because I want to see our back black businesses flourish because I believe we deserve a seat at the table. But I think it has increased more, but I think it should be something that we should all seek out all the time. 
And Katrina, you mentioned a list of black businesses. You have one for your chamber. You want to tell us about that? Yes. Um, so on June 19th, um, one of the things we did, um, we, we have a black online directory that came available within the city. So you have to go and download the app. It's, it's called I Am Black Business. Um, and we also connected with what Congressman Lawson is doing over there, but he has the printed copy. Um, I went according, you know, since the COVID-19 is making a lot of the businesses change and what we do. Um, and so you're not always able to get the print material and everybody always uses the option of GPSing and everything. So that gives you that opportunity to do that. Um, and I'm like, Beth, it was sad to say, you know, as a chamber that serve everybody, um, I was embarrassed to say that we didn't have a online black business directory. Um, and so we made it at the Capital City Chamber, we made it our business to put that out there and businesses are study adding on every week. Great, thank you. Next question, are there things that we can do that will help reduce segregation of businesses without favoring promoting one business over another? Are there non-government solutions to this problem? Two-part question. Any of our commissioners wanna address that? Reduce segregation of businesses. Well, I think I think it starts with what Beth is doing with her organization. She she looked to see what was what was going on. She had, she did her analysis. She determined that they could do better. I think that that's what we need to do. We we need to be intentional about um, making sure that we um, use uh, black businesses or minority businesses. And I'm not talking about I'm not not just talking about um, women and, and and minority. I'm talking about minority business because. Women-owned businesses sometimes, their husband actually owns the business and transfers 51% of it to the wife or the daughter so that they too can benefit from that. I worked in purchasing a long time, so I've seen these these, these uh, trends happen. So we've got to be intentional about doing those kinds of uh, things, making sure you're doing business with, with the uh, the other businesses so, so that we can redistribute this wealth because right now it's tilted. Extremely tilted, Commissioner Deloge. Yeah, let me jump in. So Heidi, this should be near and dear to your heart. There are three chambers, and I realized the need for three different chambers, but we need to do a better job of having them work a little bit more together. Because the reality is, you can't have three separate people pulling in different directions. There ought to be some cross pollinization, and we ought to be able to work together. I'm not sure how that looks. I know when I was chairman. This was an ongoing, we only had one other chamber at the time because Katrina, I don't think y'all were in existence, but it's been, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a struggle in it. And it's almost at some points, it, it, it creates, it accomplishes the opposite of what you hope to accomplish, I guess. Well, actually, um, I'll let Katrina go because their chamber is, was there before the big and minority chamber. Okay. I'm sorry. I got those flipped. Okay. Katrina, did you want to say something there about how you all are working together? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, actually, when all this, um, when when the 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 pandemic, the Black Lives Matter came up, um, we all met together um, to say, how can we move forward with the community? Um, it's very difficult, um, and just like you said, Brian, it's very difficult. The Capital City Chamber, um, the ones that are working on the board with me, it do, it do depend on the leader and the president. And I understand it's different dynamics when I, I basically tell people that's on my board and I respect them to the highest. They are older than me. They have so much wisdom and all of this. 
I, but I also tell them, you know, we got to um, break down the silos and they were all on board with me. When we move forward and, and we all, all three of the chambers have boards, we all know, even all of us on this, on this call, we have to break down the silos of working together and getting along with each other and working together. And it's not going to kill it. You got to look at, take your personal out of it, your personal feelings out of it and look at it as a whole for the better, the, the, the betterness of the business community. And I think that's what a lot of our chamber boards are not doing. Um, we, we, I tried to move the needle on that. No results. Um, I've tried to move the needle on that a couple of times. No results. I think, um, by us starting to have conversations again, and I and I know we should move the needle on this a little bit more. And I'm just being open and honest now. And the thing about it, being open and honest on this call, let's see what the results are going to be next week. Because we should be coming together, streamlining things for our businesses, even with what the county is doing, what the city is doing, and moving it forward. Now, listen, I don't mind, Brian, you can give me a job tomorrow. I'll let Capital City Chamber go and I'll bridge with another chamber because it does strengthen us. So, yeah, you, we, we can shift this tonight. But at the same time, how intentional are the board members at those chambers are willing to work with Antonio, are willing to work with Sue, and are willing to work with me to break down their silos and say, let's get this done for the community. Thank you, Katrina. We have five minutes left. I want to give everyone a chance to give some closing comments. Dom, you're first. Closing comments. Yeah, no, I think it's been a good discussion. You know, I, I think the reality is that all of us need to have to audit our own behavior and our own perceptions and biases that we actually um, have uh, one towards another. Um, and I think that's the only way we can really begin to bridge cultural community and commerce, to be completely honest. And so uh, continuously educate yourselves on what's happening. Um, a couple of books, The Color of Law, again, a great read. Uh, the McKinsey Report on uh, Black, Black Economic Forum, I think that's a great read as well. And uh, again, I'm, I'm here with we'll to have some continued conversation about how we actually spring things into action and move this stuff forward. Uh, but thanks, it's been good. Thank you. Commissioner Cox, 30 seconds, closing comments. 30 seconds. We need to continue this conversation. This is not enough time to have real solutions. So I'm willing to host another event with these same panelists or whomever wants to be involved so that we can really move our city forward. Anybody in? Thank you. Peter, we didn't hear a lot from you, but you did say a lot. You said you're going to be a champion, and, and I really applaud you for doing that. Closing thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, again, I think talk is cheap. I mean, in, in my, my world, I'm hearing a lot of talk and I'm hearing a lot of the apologies and uh, a lot of we're going to do better. Well, we'll see. You know, we've had emotional moments like this before. And unfortunately, these emotional moments, they've come and they've gone. And as a black community, we're not eating better. You know, so this moment is a moment for us to take advantage. We do need to keep the conversation going. We need to keep keep the heat on. And if we do it. Uh, if we keep heat on, keep the conversation going, uh, I think we can get some things done. But again, uh, in my world, talk is cheap. Uh, something does have to happen and change does have to happen. And it starts with us. Yeah, thank you. Beth? Uh, first of all, thank you for bringing us all together. This has been a great evening. Um, and I would just tell you that my personal commitment, as Dominic mentioned, was an audit of my own personal behavior but more importantly, how can I influence the organizations that I am a member of and uh, to discuss how do we move it forward and not just make this about the 
year. I think, Katrina, you used that term, not about supporting uh, the black community in a number of ways just through the end of the year so we can check, but how we really um, affect systemic change uh, for our community and for those of us who love this community and want to see it vibrant and thriving. Thank you, Beth. Dr. Fashanta Friday-Stroud. Again, I, I agree with um, everything everyone said, and um, I think Peter said it best, right? Talk is cheap. So it's now, you know, don't just talk about it, be about it. We have to um, really make these things happen. Um, I am a um, firm believer that education is and can be a great equalizer. Clearly, I've dedicated my whole career to education. But you got to make sure we have like that true triangle, right? So the education, then we got to have the businesses, and then we have to have a strong community. And if we put those three together and work in tandem, I think we can make it happen. But again, talk is cheap. We got to see where we're going to go. My, my bet, though, is on that we can make a change. Thank you. Commissioner Deloge. Well, thanks. Appreciate the chance to participate. Um, I said it earlier, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. Peter, uh, talk is, is, is easy. We've got time here. Um, I'd ask that for those of y'all that get a chance to interact around the country, if you see models of things that we can do differently, let's, let's take advantage and plagiarize them, especially when it comes to how government interacts with the community. Because frankly, I don't have all the answers. I'm open. And as long as it's legal and ethical and moral, I'm all in. So... Um, but I appreciate the time and the energy in Village Square, as always. Thanks. Thank you. Katrina? I think I've talked enough, but um, I just want to close and say, um, I, 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 off of what Peter said, I mean, that just stuck, that talk is cheap. Um, I am not a person of just um, talk, and that's what I tried to do from the top at the Capital City Chamber. Um, if Basically, if you bring Capital City Chamber to the table, we're going to try to bring some results. Um, if we can't do it, um, I, a team of us will say, oh, oh, I can't get that done. But that's when you come into the collaborative form with every one of you guys that's on this um, call. And, and I feel like now that uh, I can put you on speed down and say, hey, can we work together and get this done? And I think um, I will be on the call with Commissioner Williams Cox continuing this conversation uh, because y'all need to we need to look in each other's face a little bit more and get things done. I agree. Thank you, Village Square. Thank you. If we look at each other's faces, we have to wear masks and be six feet apart. <laughs> well, I mean, on, on, on we'll Zoom. meet on Zoom. Who's we'll idea was that? Zoom. That's Zoom. easy. Because <laughs> you can have jeans. You can have jeans on on the bottom. Right. That's right, Mr. Antonio. So listen, I'll, I'll end here. Uh, I want to know why in America that, that African Americans have to die to move the needle. Why do we have to break the law to get change? Uh, Rosa Parks sat on that bus that day, uh, Commissioner Cox, and it was not a, it was not in her favor because the law said that she wasn't supposed to sit there. And it wasn't until she broke that law that we, we progressed in one direction. The only thing I'm saying to, to Commissioner Cox and uh, Chairman Deloge and all of us is let's get prepared to break what we got, because what we got is not working. And again, I want all of us to stay out of jail. I don't want nobody to accuse us of doing anything wrong. And well, we can't break the law then, because we would surely go to jail. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> and I don't think African-American businesses in this community want to set aside. 
but they damn sure want a pair of boots that they can pull the bootstraps on. So Mm -hmm. let's work together. And I appreciate Village Square giving us this, this, and know that the the members and the board of directors at the Big Ben Minority Chamber of Commerce, not talk is not the talk is cheap inside of our chamber, but we want to be part of the solution and, and honored to work with everybody here to do that. Thank you. Well, I want to thank everybody for their participation on today's panel. I think we had some really open and honest dialogue, and I think if we had a little more time, we'd go a little bit deeper into the some of the topics that we talked about and probably could have pulled out some true action items. So I look forward to the next opportunity. And on behalf of the Village Square's partners in offering the Equality of Life series, Bethel Missionary Baptist Church, the U.S. Attorney's uh, Office, and my friends at Saks Media Group, I'd like to thank each of you for, for participating tonight. And I also want to thank the community members who joined us tonight. A reminder that this is the second in our three-part series, Equality in Life. The next conversation will be facilitated by Lila Jabber of Gunster Law Firm two weeks from tonight at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, July 21st. To register to participate in that program, go to tlh.villagesquare.us. Good night, everyone. Hello again. This is Vanessa, your podcast host. Thanks for joining us today for this very important conversation. And thanks to each of these panelists for participating and for their commitment to our community. Before we close out, I want to share just a couple of reflections of mine from listening to this discussion. There was that question toward the end about non-government solutions to make business practices more equitable. And also that comment from Commissioner Williams-Cox about women-owned businesses that are really owned by husbands. We probably can all think of examples where that or something similar happens, which I think means it's kind of become a sort of accepted part of our society and maybe even something we admire and try to emulate. I've been thinking about that a lot, and I've also been thinking about a common theme that I've noticed in a lot of these conversations on race, and that's about the role of personal responsibility. You heard our panelists talk about that here in this program, and I think there's just a lot of focus right now in general on us as individuals looking at our own role in the race relations in our country. And so I think these things kind of go hand in hand. Maybe in order to make real lasting change, we need to hold ourselves up personally to a higher standard, to something that's more rooted in ethics and morality rather than technically what the law will allow us to get away with. Policy will only take us so far because I think we all notice how with any policy, there's plenty of loopholes and even unintended side effects that we didn't realize or can't put a stop to. It seems to me that what a lot of people are really focused on now is making intentional personal change. And that's where I'm at in this learning and listening phase And as I see things more clearly and move towards action, I hope to come together with those around me so that we can all figure out together how we can do better for our whole community. It's our job as citizens to stay engaged so that all this momentum leads us past a moment in history and toward a new and better tomorrow. You can find the show notes page for this episode with links to resources mentioned at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. 
While you're there, check out episode one of the Village Squarecast for a little Village Square 101 with Executive Director Liz Joyner. And please check back soon for part three of the Equality in Life series, which will focus on the role of government. Find that discussion and more soon on the Village Squarecast. We appreciate you listening to this Equality in Life episode of the Village Squarecast. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to the Village Squarecast.